Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, Jonathan Gullis. And me, James Starkey. Well, James, the final guest of Series 1 was Tim Shipman. We're now doing our final episode here of Part 2, where obviously we reflect on it. First of all, let's ask about what you thought about what Tim said. Uh, well, look, I mean, with Tim, I really enjoy his books. And I think, probably like yourself, when he was when he was starting and talking about how he watched the news flicked... From one channel to the other, I actually lied. We didn't go into it, but I was I was looking at you because I thought, you know, that's like the political geek in us all, right? Yeah. I think that's what Tim has got. That's what I you've still got. Do it. That's what I've got. Probably what a lot of people listening have got. And as a political geek, you know, there's you you read these you read political books. I think Tim is one of the best at it, and the reason why is because he does manage to, in the way he does with his long reads on a Sunday, he he manages to tell a story which is. As he as he described it, the kind of Jennifer Aniston bit, the science bit, it's got to be right. It's got to be accurate. It's got to be what's gone on, but it's got to be told in a way that's engaging and it grabs you. And as he said, takes you all the way through to the end. And I think he to do that across a whole, but you know, a whole huge time period when it you must almost get lost in the interesting bits because we both you know worked work or have worked to some extent in politics. And there's so many things you're like, that would be really, there must be things you have to drop because it's like, that doesn't quite work or it doesn't really help with the narrative. It's just interesting on its own. Mate, three million words of transcribing yeah. interviews. You know, like you say, how on earth you choose out of three million words what's the best thing to have or to use is mind blowing. And I think the patience as well to be able to read through all that and pull it apart and different people's interviews at the same periods and then trying to get that consistent theme that thread as well as obviously understanding as tim said have some people got their own agenda pushing their own viewpoint what's based in fact what's based more on uh, misconception i think that i just it, I, I i'm like you i'm a huge shippers fan those books i, I love them uh and I, I think as a political nerd i'm sure there'll be massive excitement in november when his next one but comes i think out. there's a i mean Harry and Kate touched on this when we did the lobby pod. Thinking, reflecting on it, I mean, there's a part of that skill that you everyone needs in politics, right? Anyone who works in politics, whether you're an MP, a special advisor, a journalist, uh, and I imagine to some extent senior civil servants, you're trying to work, you're always trying to read the runes and read between the lights because I don't know, like, you know, what the whips say to you about a certain issue or when you sit with a minister as an MP on a on a kind of constituency issue and they say, well, don't, you know, don't worry, we're all over this. You know, you're, the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, are they? You know, because they're telling, you know, often I'll speak to people, you know, I've been involved in a few campaigns and they'll say, well, you know, they, they sounded very interested in this. And I'll say, well, of course they sounded interested because they're politicians, right? So they're going to, they're not, they're rare, politicians rarely sit in you front of you. You skeptic, James. You I would skeptic. suggest and say... They really sit in front of you and say it's a terrible idea. We're not going to do that. They say, "Well, that's very interesting. We'll take that away and we'll get we'll get the civil service to have a look at it." Well, what they mean is, <laughs> how do we get these people off our back? I don't. Do I don't. But I. 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 I think every idea is interesting. Just for all the listeners out there that have ever engaged with me, I think every idea is interesting. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. And I think it's it's not. I don't. It's not a criticism of anyone in particular. I think it's just the nature of politics. Yeah. Right. So, and so I think there's a lot. If you work in politics, I think part of a skill that you need is kind of understanding, 
what someone's really trying to tell you. And it also goes to the point that Kate was talking about again in the lobby episode, which is about language. You know, people, I think in politics, pick their language very carefully. And so one of the skills, and I was thinking about this when I, while with the SPAD podcast out last week, we talked to um, Hannah and Martin about kind of what, you know, what are the skills that you're left with that help you in the rest of life? And I think as someone that works, you know, on a comm side, you know, in the private sector, I think it does train your mind to think about the importance of what individual words and sentences and meanings and how do you convey things? How do you really convey things well in a powerful and compelling way? And also, frankly, sometimes how do you give yourself room? You know, how do you maybe not to commit something too early on when, you know, when you, if you look over the next few months, things might change. Yeah, I know. I think back to like in my, as I said before, my albeit brief time in the Department for Education, those conversations, how frank and open you are, as well as trying to leave yourself space that if the idea comes back as a little bit wacky, a little bit out there, or isn't getting the positive reaction you hope from the people you work with in the department, that you can kind of take yourself out of it in a different direction. I think that's so important. And what I love about Tim's books as well is he he mentioned them being rude because obviously he will quote the words used. But actually, I think that shows the human side and it does play into the Malcolm Tucker image. You know, politicians are human. The the odd word that shouldn't be used to use. Debates can get heated. You'd have seen that uh, during your time working either both uh, when, you know, uh, ministers were debating ideas. And ultimately, it is a very... Uh, politics itself, I think we sometimes get, is very emotive because it mm. is so personal. You know, as we've looked at before, politicians... Well, it feels personal. It's not, it's not always personal, right? I mean, no, that's true. That's the best way of putting it. That's it shouldn't way be. Way putting it. And, and often it really isn't. And you aren't making decisions to do something or not to do something because you do or don't like someone. But it feels like that because you're invested in it. Because, you know, we talked about it before. You you know, again, touching on, you, you end up being friends with people in a way you probably aren't at work. So when your friend does something that you don't like, that feels personal when it's not. It's actually... It's the Secretary of State's job to make very difficult decisions. If you're Michael in charge of Lurk or Hunt or whoever is at the Treasury at the time or the, on the Prime Minister himself, he's got every day he's got a range of decisions that someone's probably going to lose out from. And he's and I would suggest on the whole, ninety nine point nine percent of the time those decisions are not made to upset anyone personally. They're made because he's got to choose between does he give the funding to this or to that or you know, does he pick this organisation to back or that organisation? Always, you know, he's got to build houses and that's, and having a big target is going to accept, uh, accept some people and then getting rid of the target might make some people happy but might upset some other people. I think levelling up funding, James, is a really good example. Look, round one, a lot of the red wall seats, as they're known as, got a lot of money. And what happened? A lot of those traditional blue wall Tory seats in the Shires, which will, of course, have pockets of deprivation, uh, maybe not as broad as in other areas. I think, I think a famous politician said some of those places have pockets of deprivation. Do they? I don't know who the famous, but I'm hoping it's not me. Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak, well... Uh, he did he did mention that but of course a lot of colleagues i forgot that tunbridge wells uh mm-hmm. when it was mentioned but uh, this is why it's so important that you know that those colleagues obviously got upset so then people would argue in leveling up funding round two you kind of saw maybe a decision made to readdress that balance and it's true, but that i would i would imagine and i would well i would almost say for certain none of those decisions were personal no you know, I agree the people with that took the decisions not to give money to some certain blue wall seats wasn't because they had a problem with the, with any of the MPs in the blue wall. 
it was because we built a voting coalition and we felt that we needed to, you know, leveling up, invest in the red wall. Equally, we're going into an election where some of the blue wall is at risk. And so it's felt that that needs shoring up, right? Like it, it will feel like it's because of this side of the party's in charge of this. And then maybe some of that, but I imagine on the whole, the people that are taking those decisions genuinely believe they're taking them for strong political, economic, you know, policy reasons. And you know what was fascinating? Tim made that point, didn't he, about how even in his own book with the Brexit stuff, even on the Remain side, you've got the Remainers who wanted a second referendum, the Remainers who wanted Norway, the Remainers who wanted the single market. But on Brexiteers, and you know this, James, you know, and I, I've, I work around those colleagues, those people who wanted Brexit but wanted to still stay reasonably aligned, they wanted that relationship with Europe they thought would be beneficial, to others who wanted to literally go to battle and try and undercut Europe, try and steal business, try and, you know, become Singapore on terms of term that we heard at the time. I think, you know, that's essentially why, and that's why I think it's so important, as you say, that we understand that politicians fall into the trap of probably taking things more personally and emotionally than they should do. And I think Tim expoused that with his own book where he mentioned Fiona, you know, Fiona Hill had given him some stuff and then there was a period of time where they just didn't talk, yet they had spoken quite a lot before then. And he said he it felt like at the time it maybe was related to the but fact that, that... I thought that was interesting. I mean, do you, uh, for you personally, you obviously, maybe it's more about colleagues, people in government or whatever. And we've had, we've had pretty divisive leadership contests. I yeah. think, you know, the... Whatever side you were on, the kind of downfall of Boris was divisive in itself. Then the trust Sunak was very divisive. I will say, having worked on a leadership contest, I hate them. It's the worst election to work on because you are directly kind of it's your friends on the other side, and you know we've both got we've both got friends in the Labour Party, but not to the same extent, and certainly not people who you're you know one minute you're working side by side with someone on the exact same objective and then for six weeks or whatever it is you're kind of going hammer and tongues against them because you're trying to get your your person to win so i am by by a country mile enjoyed them the least but we've had that for the last six months i wonder do you do you ever look back and think you took things personally that weren't personal oh yeah definitely um i fall into the trap as well as also with the wings of the party Oh, that's that wing of the party. They're getting their agenda. Uh, you know that that X person favors them. That's why that's happening. Oh, that person got promoted because they're from the opposite wing of the party. Someone like me will never get promoted because I'm deemed to be on the right or you know whatever like that. And I uh, easily fall into those traps. And actually, I've I've noticed personally in recent times. I think that that is still very much alive and kicking, and it's very much an undercurrent, which is why it's such a challenge for the Prime Minister Rishi to be able to try and keep this coalition within his own Conservative Party, let alone the coalition of voters that got people like me elected in 2019, as well as winning your traditional blue wall seats uh, together. And maybe, it may be a bridge too far. Who knows? We'll find out in, you know, 15, 18 months' time, whatever it is. But I think that's... The, I, I certainly think I look back at, like, levelling up fund. You know, we were kind of, you know, we bid for everything in round one strategically. But now I want another bite of the cherry because in Stoke we've got so much more. But we're being told, obviously, the system set up that you, once you've been successful, you can't go in again. And they're like, but why? Surely you need to win Stoke on trend. Surely mm. you want Stoke to succeed. Is it because of me? Is it because I'm like, I don't fit your Does prototype? Does it feel personal then? So you can, I think you can allow yourself to make it believe it's personal. I think you can convince yourself it's. I think in politics, because especially in parliament, People are your friends. 
but they're also your competition. They're competing for the same pool of money. They're competing for promotion in some cases or jobs. Let's be frank. People want, all of us want to be the prime minister. And anyone who says they don't, I don't believe personally. Everyone thinks they could be a prime minister and be a good one. So everyone wants to go up the ladder in terms of the career path. Everyone thinks that, you know, they're the, the darling of the Tory party. And we all know ministers and stuff will look at the con home poll ratings and have a look. And I'm sure this is all the same on the Labour side as well. And so your people who are your colleagues and in some cases your friends are almost some in some ways your foes. And that level of mistrust, I don't think creates a good mental health space personally. I think it can be very exhausting, very tiring if you allow yourself to be stuck in that mindset. But I also think it's um, it creates for a lot of mistrust, which is why I think getting things done can be so challenging and i saw that with the recent amendments that i was part of for the illegal migration bill the media pitched it as there were two wings of the tory party going to battle against each other when actually we both agreed with the objective which was to stop the boats but we allowed for that two-week period to be this sort of melodrama played out in the media as we were fighting one another for who was going to reign supreme in the battle of their amendments and i think that wasn't that wasn't helpful to the leadership and that wasn't helpful to the country because ultimately the country just wants the solution to the problem. They don't want to see internal factions trying to win the argument, the moral argument probably that would be defined by certain colleagues. But actually the country just wants answers, as I say. I mean, you must have seen it as a special advisor. Do you think like, you know, when you're working with colleagues, do you, what do you think? Do you think people take it personally, even at special advisor level? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, Lots of things feel personal. I think you rarely get attacked. I think that's the difference. And I always, I, you know, I remember when I resigned from government and Michael kind of obviously, it was quite public that he, I think he considered it, um, which was over the Northern Ireland Protocol. I remember saying to him, look, it's different for you because no one's, you know, there's not going to be a Sky News camera outside my house tomorrow. Uh, you know, no one's going to write, write about me. And so I didn't have that same consideration that you have that public reputation. And so it is different. So you're not kind of targeted in that way in, this, in the way that Michael or Pretty or Rishi or Boris or whatever, when they make a decision, um, you know, it's poured over. There's, there's, there's three days, four days of pay. There's documentaries made on some of this stuff, right? Yeah. Which occasionally special advisors get caught up with. You know, but really people like Dominic Cummings, Alistair Campbell, that's quite rare. You know, as a percentage, you're talking about one or two percent of, of special advisors that ever really cut through to the media. You know, there's there's a few characters over the past two decades and you could name them. Outside of that, you are not really named. And so I don't think I think it is much easier to go home and not kind of feel like I, I always wonder, you know, what it's like when you've just got reams and reams written about you so it doesn't feel nice it doesn't feel like something i ever want to deal with i hate it i hate it uh i really do hate it i mean look i i said in an interview recently i was a teetotaler and twitter lost its mind and found photos of me posing with pints or having pints Mm. now as i said i'm a teetotaler you know james since november 2021 i've not had a drink Mm. i've i've poured pints in pubs and given them to customers uh because you know i'm visiting a local pub but you know, to see this, like, 300,000 impressions of people calling you a liar and all this stuff, like, it gets you down because you're like, I wasn't, I was telling the truth. I think the that's truth. the stuff I find, I think I would 
struggle with and and to not say anything about and not get angry about i think it bothered me all day yesterday all day yesterday it was in my head all day yesterday because i was like do i need to come out and make a statement do i need to say something or do i just let it fester for 24 hours and naturally die off when the next big does it make it work i mean it's all the the problem for a politician is often to deal with the thing that's going on the risk is you actually make it worse yeah so so everyone is trapped yeah, so with that one, for example, and I know it's a pathetic, tiny example using me, which is probably a really bad idea to do, but I just basically said, look, I'm, I'm going to let it die a death, you know, over time. And if anyone ever asked me about it, I've said it in other interviews, I'll say it again, that what I've just told the listeners on the pod of when I've chose to stop drinking because I just didn't want to drink. I, just, I, I eat too much McDonald's, so I thought having alcohol on top of <laughs> McDonald's was going to be a problem for me. So, you know, I, I thought... Uh, and I was too stingy to ever buy alcohol in my food shop because I just didn't want to. I didn't see that I could. I could buy three double cheeseburgers without ten yeah. quid, uh, rather than buy a crate of carling. So that's how I justify <laughs> the calories. I'm like, well, I can have a McDonald's because beer's quite. It's got a lot of calories. Exactly. I, I haven't. I haven't we've, had a drink for three years. We've won years, the system. So. We've won the system. You know what I mean? We're yeah. just hacking. We're life hacking. How well, to enjoy McDonald's? Lost any weight at all since I stopped drinking? But, well, um, yeah, no, same for me. So you know, but I'm still going to claim a win. But you're right. Like, and I think that's. What's interesting with what Tim does, right? Because it's not just the books. I think the Sunday reads, and I meant it when I said it to Tim, when he has those stories, as a backbench MP, it is fascinating to read them because actually I find those Sundays most likely to probably be more accurate of what's really going on versus what my whip and what number 10 and what other colleagues well, will got, tell but me. But also as a spad, you've got an eye on them, right? So I was a special advisor during the height of Brexit, really there was competition for the narrative of of what's going on, what's really going on in number 10, where things are really likely to go, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And and I think, you know, people, in all seriousness, people are, will, you know, Tim touched on it about how do you kind of keep various contacts happy and in the middle he's trying to work out the truth. But as a special advisor, that story is going to be written. And it does have an impact. And, you know, you're an MP and you're saying you read it and you take note of it. And so as a special advisor working for a cabinet minister and one that was had, you know, both have, have strong views on Brexit, although with pretty, you know, that battle had kind of been done, you know, Boris on the same side as Boris. But, um, you know, it's important to kind of say, well, no, that's actually not, that's, that's actually not what happened. Well, that's not what was discussed or agreed. So that might be what, such and such a department of Downing Street are telling you, but no, that is not true. Because they'll be saying, we know, well, they've said they're going to accept this. They've, you know, said, said this or whatever. So there is that kind of battle for it. So you you do have to, you do have to deal with it. And I think Tim, Tim was right. I've seen it happen before where people are like, well, you don't really need to speak to them and you can just crack on with your life. And I'm, I wonder how many MPs said that. We talked about it early on with the whip saying you don't need to, speak to journalists but i imagine when they find you know when you're being written about in a certain way how do you how would you deal with that without calling them up and speaking to yourself you i mean frankly you don't unless someone you're doing it or someone on your behalf is saying no that's not how it happened then you've got no way of affecting the narrative which is why i think that's the, the sunday long reads of any newspaper not just him stuff i mean i i just think are really fascinating because they are a reflection on the week, but also a, a view of what's coming down the track. And to sell those stories, they, you know, they set. I personally think they really do set the tone for politics. I think that the media will use them to set a tone, which is fine. I firmly believe now politicians also use them to set the tone. They're reading them on the Sunday. On the Monday, 
that stuff's being talked about. Of course, I mean, let's look at the local elections briefly. Uh, going into the local elections, you know, uh, let's we don't need to look at the specific ones, but going into the local elections, each party, I think we slightly covered this on the local election podcast, but each party will set a certain expectation. You know, the governing party will say, well, we're going to lose a few, and this is what we think, which is much less than they think they're going to lose. So whatever happens, they look good. And the, you know, the opposition, Labour in this case, will say, well, I don't think we can win that many. It's actually quite difficult, and the Lib Dems are doing quite well, and it was a really good set for us three years ago. So they want to be able to say, as Labour could come out of the last one, and say, well, we did much better than our expectations, when privately, that's probably what they thought they were going to get. Yeah. And, you know, that is all about how things are perceived afterwards. So both are main, you know, everyone's involved in that, right? Because if you don't go out and set it, someone else is going to set it. If the Tories don't set what they're going to do, then Labour will attempt to set that for them and yeah. vice versa. Which I thought was quite interesting when Tim talked about how his words, his words, Chief Whip, uh, quite dull uh, things are currently under uh, Rishi. And actually that vacuum that that's therefore creating within politics and seeing more and more backbench MPs, you know, or even ministers, to be quite frank, as well as the opposition to sort of come out and, and let's be frank, partially set out their ideas, their views. Like their, That's going to have more and more. Less and that's going to have more and more, which is going to be really interesting going over the summer months, right? In particular, that summer mm. recess, which the whip's worst nightmare when you've got MPs away for six weeks in their patches, no one's being able to keep eyes on them as easy you know, people are on holiday or people are, you know, quite frankly, coming up with what they think should happen next. And especially, as you say, we're getting closer to an election. More and more colleagues are going to be thinking about how they want to influence the manifesto, um, campaigning, what's message is landing on their patch versus what message isn't, what are the main issues, is it the five pledges or does there need to be a pivot to something else? You know, these are, these are going to be fascinating times. And for Labour, getting the groundwork in place for that election, getting candidates selected, getting a narrative out there for themselves as to what they want to achieve. And obviously gathering, being out as a campaigning force to say, we are the government waiting, we're the ones with the ideas, and in that we're just simply waiting for the opportunity to come in to govern. Uh, I think that's going to be a fascinating summer recess going forward for, for all politicians and for journalists who are going to be writing about this stuff. Well, from Tim reflecting for the last few years to us reflecting on our kind of pilot season, what we've actually called it, but our, our first go... Series one. Last, series one. There's, there's so many things that I thought I knew about, uh, whether it was the lobby, passing legislation with Pretty. Um, I was always looking forward to the Michael one inside Cabinet because I've never been inside Cabinet. So I, I've had readouts. I have and now, James. Stuff. I have had um, now, haven't I? I went to political cabinet. You have. I went yeah. to political cabinet to, uh, to talk about education policy, which so I, I can I can now make sure that in the future, Jonathan goes who wants to attend. You. Well, well, here we go because Jonathan goes who uh, who has you attended need to bring cabinet. The impressions like Michael did. Uh, I mean, I'd be impressions of I don't know if Sir Graham Brady would appreciate me trying to impersonate him. Um, I think what's your impre- you, you know what what are the good impressions of current cabinet? I, I I mean I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that because uh, may, no. maybe maybe I can't lure you into an impression of Oliver Golden. No, no 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 I think disappointing. It's best. I think it's best. But what are the things that you reflect on over the episodes we've done, or have you have you found it? I think for me the Michael one was fascinating to hear about the coalition years because yeah. it was such a big part of you know my time when I sort of really entered politics, and he was open about it and hearing about 
the AV referendum and you know the debate and discussions around Libya and Syria at the time. Um, the lobby one was fascinating. I mean, I think there's just the basics. I didn't realise that what you say in the corridor outside the 22 meeting, uh, which is obviously for backbench Conservative MPs, yeah. is can't be published. <laughs> so I haven't yet tested it, but I really want to test how strong that is. Um, you'll probably advise against it, James. Just remind me. So if I walk out and say something... You're in the 22. Yeah, you walk out right, the door. You come out the door. There's a load of journalists there. What do you think, Jonathan? Oh, I thought and they, it was they rubbish. will say something too. And what was Kate saying? You thought you have to say go on the record as Jonathan Gullis. No, I think you're always. I assumed you're always on the record. But okay. unless the journalists say, "Can we have that on the record?" Right. They can't print. Or and you just anything. thought you were being a good boy by saying yes. Yes. So now I'm going to start. So you, you didn't realise you could. You could say just no. brief as a. What would you be described as? A senior talk. They're all senior Tory. Everyone's MPs. a senior Tory, mate. Everyone's a senior, a, a leading red waller. You know, whatever leading, it is. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, gobby, uh, a gobby backbencher. I'm sure there's a load of, uh, you know, competition for our listeners who can come up with the best way to describe yeah. me in the media. A Boris supporting MP. Which depends which month it is for that one. But. Oh, okay. Oh, that's a little dig at <laughs> the pod. That's a dig. Oh dear. Oh dear. Oh dear. We'll no, move on from five. that. We'll move on. That as a shot's fine. I'll let you have that one. I'll let you have that one. Um, I think that the other one, um, I loved Pretty with taking a bill through Parliament to hear from the minister's perspective, because I've never done that. I only know from my side. So mm. to hear what it was like to deal with a bill inside the department, obviously divvying up responsibilities and how the Secretary of State really does have a lot of power to decide how much they're leading versus how much they're trusting their ministers and actually creating a team environment for that to work. I really enjoyed the Spaz one because obviously I think Hannah and uh, Hannah and Martin did a good job of sparing you uh, having to you know reveal all your dirty secrets uh, about you know how how because you I think I think the real Malcolm Tucker is James Starkey personally for all our listeners but we'll uh, you know that's a scandalous allegation I might see a, a, a legal letters on its way I'm sure now but uh, I I think for me what we've learned is that it's a lot about relationships. Mm-hmm. and trying to build as much trust as you can, no matter what team you're in. I think it, and so trust between ministers and civil servants, trust between members of each political party, trust between the special advisor and the minister, trust between the journalists and MPs to give that information. I think, you know, to share information that is going to paint an accurate picture of what's really being reflected right now. So relationships are vital. I think another thing that we've learned as well is that it is just... It is in some cases. It is you know. You're some days you're firefighting and some days you're not. And as an MP, or you know, sort of, it's probably I think a lot more reactionary a profession than I ever thought it would be. I think everyone goes into government with a plan. You've you've said this to me before, James. Everyone goes in with a plan, and it's all good to go with a plan until it's until you come to your first iceberg, mm. and then. Although one thing I was reflecting on over the past couple of weeks was. Not to be unfair, I think if you look back over the last decade of Tory rule, one of the things that would stand out, perhaps the thing that stands out the most is the education reforms that Michael brought in. They were controversial at the time, but now they're frankly Labour Party policy. Yeah. So, And they were a big change and they're broadly, I think, um, you, you're the expert on education, but they're broadly considered to be a success. There are There's lots of things you can point out to show that this works. Yeah. I'm sure there's things they could be improved on, and that's absolutely, the case with all policy. Absolutely. But I'm coming for you, Nick Gibb. I'm coming for you. Yeah, some ideas. But I think the way he laid it out was that was a lot of work in opposition. Yes. So that was two, three years of work with him, Dominic Cummings, Henry Dizou, 
smart people who knew where they wanted to go. And as he said, engaging with people that have been in government before, they came in with a bill. They knew what they wanted to do. And I think we that were talking... My mind. The fact they walked in with a written bill and basically said, can you, can you chest well, this? Well, I think people are talking... Maybe that Labour go into government in 18 months. And, you know, I would say it's not unfair to say that Labour don't actually have that many clear policies publicly. And I think someone was, you know, saying, how, what would their first year be like? And listening to the Michael one, I think their first year will be dictated by how, I mean, they might have to do a coalition agreement, of course, but it'll be dictated by how prepared they are. Yeah. They've got 18 months, two years. This is the stage where they are now is the stage from speaking to Michael that they were really starting to get engaged with people who had been in government, run government departments, all this kind of stuff before. Professionals and stakeholders. They had a very well. clear view, in this case on education, about where they wanted to go and they were starting to put that bill together. That is why they had, they, that is why we can look back and go, well, if we think about Cameron's time, we can think about education, think about Michael. And so the question is, you know, are they there? And that, I thought that was really interesting how well prepared opposition parties are. And it's that turning point of turning yourself into a party of opposition, into party yeah. preparing for government. And they, you know, Cameron's team clearly, to me, from what, Michael said Cameron's team were prepared for that. Well, it and sounds that, like the training, right? We heard how there was training. Michael Barber, people like that. And and actually, the, we've read the reports that Keir Starmer's doing exactly the same thing with his Labour front bench now, because literally, including himself, only two of his current shadow front bench have ever actually been ministers in government, mm. obviously since Labour, um, when, when Labour were in office. So it sounds like... On the face of it, they're starting the right process, learning about how a department works, how you run it, figuring out your style. But at the same time, like you say, what will be fascinating is, and of course they don't want to show all their cards at this stage and yeah. don't blame them, but how much actually behind the scenes is going on to say, we are literally ready to walk in, we will literally have a set of ideas for each department of enacting policies. And as you say, as well as inheriting whatever situation they inherit, right? You know, the, we see the headline figures that are produced by the Treasury, etc. What will the state of the economy be in? What will the will the cost of living but crisis think, you be where it is? Because you can see this with recent people. I think Boris, when he came in as Prime Minister, he had Dominic Cummings. Now, I know, because I was on the Vote Leave team and I, I'd spoken to Dom at that point, I think there was a really clear idea of what needed to be done on Brexit. Some people will agree with it and some people won't. But that first 90 to 180 days was very, very well mapped out. They knew what they wanted to do. Uh, they knew the pitfalls. They knew, but they knew what they were going to have to do. And if you look back, you can dis you can disagree with what they did. But it's hard to argue that there wasn't a very clear path that they followed for that point. And you know, obviously, then COVID happened, and you know, sideswiped a lot of stuff. But then I think if you look at Liz, she kind of knew what she wanted to do, but they, they clearly didn't have a great plan on it because it was all tried to be done in 30 days yeah. and i think again with rishi i don't imagine rishi got into politics to deal with small boats his passion seems to me to be education yeah and they haven't had the kind of run-up and preparation and so that's where you i think you've had the downfall of having leaders kind of come in without that incubating yeah. period to be honest with where, where where you're figuring out what your path or narrative, what the things you're going to do is on the job. And that is, as the civil service would say, suboptimal to me. Well, this is the challenge, isn't it, now for Rishi? Like you say, there's a lot of news as we read about the five pledges, but actually what's the long-term vision? And as you say, he's got to basically have a plan whilst also in the chair 
and deal with all the biggest challenges, you know, deal with the energy costs, deal with, uh, stagnant, you know, stubborn inflation, mm. deal with small boats, deal with an NHS backlog. You know, these are things, like you say, that he wouldn't want to have on his in-tray. There would be lots of other things he'd want to be doing or spending money on that he's unable to because he's got to tackle these other major mm. challenges. And so that's almost the beauty in some part that Starmer's got is that he has got that space right now to set out that plan. And the challenge for Rishi is to carve out the time with his team to yeah. come up with that plan. And maybe that's the summer. Maybe that's when they, they do hunker down, but they spend that summer months to create that plan you know, and then come forward with it and try and enact some of it in order to show that this is a government of delivery of action. It's going to be a fascinating time post the summer, obviously gearing up more and more to a general election and sort of and very clearly starting to see the major parties setting out their stalls and to what they will stand for, what they will try and do. And actually, are we going back to what was used to be attacked at Cameron and, and Blair? Are we going back to politics where both Conservative and Labour, actually there's you know cigarette paper that really separates mm. them on most major issues? Or are we going to go to a Jeremy Corbyn versus Boris Johnson situation where there was a very clear divide as to what each leader well, let's wanted to do? let's be honest, at the moment, if you cut away the chaff, I would say on public positions... There's not a huge amount that divides. I think we're in Cameron Blair. People, I, I think, I think a lot of people. I think a lot of people in Westminster wouldn't like that because the views are still shaped by Boris uh, and that kind of stuff. But in actual policy positions, there's not a huge amount at the moment between Starmer's position on a range of things. He's broadly adopting the Tory position on most issues, and I suspect as we head into the election, we'll take the economic plans almost 100 of them and say, "Well, this is this is basically our tax and spend. We'll we'll take the same." That the Tories are doing, so there's not a huge amount of difference, which makes it all maybe more challenging to for a party that's been in for a long time to get any divided lines going. No, exactly, and I think that's where hopefully if we go into series two after the summer, because we want all our listeners to have a, a break from our voices, our dulcet tones, <laughs> and uh, and actually allow those summer months to re- sort of reflect for ourselves and you know see who we can interview going forward and who we can bring onto the pod to actually share those ideas. But I, all I would say is that. The excitement hasn't ended. I think that's fair to say. Uh, it may feel a lot calmer and quieter than it has been for a while since 2019. But that doesn't mean there's lots of the things not bubbling under the surface that could very quickly, uh, you know, explode. What about the types of episodes we could do? I mean, we're going to be going into elections. So at some point you've got election campaigns. That'd be a great fun one to do. Polling I think we both posters. know who I really want to, to do campaigns. I don't know if we can get them to do it. Uh, manifesto writing. Quickly, uh, before all those, we've got party conference. Um, I don't think any party conference will live up to last year's Conservative Party conference. But that was quite something, yes. Don't sack Michael Gove is what I learned from that. Don't sack Michael <laughs> don't Gove. Sack Michael Gove. That's a message I've been telling people for years. Don't sack Michael Gove, otherwise he might end up on Laura Koonsberg sometime <laughs> soon. Uh, um, I think that's definitely the takeaway from that party conference. It's Michael certainly... You know, we talk about the Sunday setting the agenda... Michael did that very successfully yeah, on Sunday. He did do that. Um, um, I agree with you, but also then you've got like, you know, I think it's important. I would love to speak to a doorkeeper, these people, as I've said oh, before, yeah. that hold a lot of actually knowledge and institutional power and actually will see a lot of things and hear a lot of things that, you know, I, I, the whips would dream of. Uh, got you've the got the, speaker. the deputy speaker or the speaker, you know, hearing about actually how you keep control of, uh, you know, noisy grunters like myself and keep me in check and, you know, uh, uh, as well as obviously hearing maybe even parliamentary staffers, like what's it like working in that building, like dealing with an MP and actually having to 
react to the different demands that come in so quickly. I think there's there's so much stuff to still explore. I, you know, I'm really I'm really excited for it going post the summer, and I hope everyone, as I say, has enjoyed what we've had to say, uh, enjoyed listening. Most importantly, and it will be excited for series two and. You know, James and I will, will throw the kitchen sink at making sure we can bring you some really interesting guests. Well, I just wanted to say thank you. There's a lot of people that reached out and said, uh, quite some people surprisingly. Uh, My local know, vicar. Reached, yeah, for your local vicar. Uh, one of the special advisors told me their their parents are keen listeners, which is going to give them updates on it. And I think we've established Even people that, in number 10, James. Even people in number say, 10 are coming up to me. We have established that it's listened to by some people in number 10, at least. I don't know how many... And uh, and, I, and I'm told via another event uh, that the Whips Office are keen listeners <laughs> as well. But all the other all the other hundred we've had we've had more people than I thought. We've had thousands of listeners over the past few weeks. So thank you so much yeah. for listening, subscribing, um, and also engaging. You know, people have reached out on on social media, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and, and sent some really kind things, both publicly and privately. So that is very, very much appreciated. Th- thanks for your support. And um, hopefully we will be back after summer. Cincinnatus. Uh, We're off to our plough. But as we know, Cincinnatus can return. Cincinnatus some can kind return. of Boris reference. Yes, he, he said he was like Cincinnatus when he was on the steps of Downing Street, saying he was returning to his plough. But of course, the second part of the story is that Cincinnatus <laughs> returns. So I just thought I'd try and steal uh, Boris's lines. Okay. Well, this is the first time I've quoted Boris in there. I hope, I, hope, I hope he hasn't got that, you know, trademarked. Otherwise, we'll have to fork out for that. But uh, we'll hopefully not. Well, maybe, maybe we'll get him in season two. Maybe we'll get him in season two. Maybe we'll just get... afford his speaker fees, but... <laughs> quite pricey from what I see on the member's interest register yeah exactly no generally thank you everyone for tuning in as I say this is the end for series one but doesn't mean we're gone for good Uh, we hope everyone has a good summer we plan to be back in September uh, you know going forward and we hope you'll tune in so thank you so much for listening as always Please make sure you follow and subscribe so that when we do come back after summer, you're ready to go. Make sure you pass on the pod, share it all over the place uh, to get as many people tuned in listening. Please give a comment. Please give a rating. Let us know what you really think. And of course, you can follow us and stay engaged with us uh, on uh, Twitter at Whitehall Pod UK. Have a good summer, everyone. Cheerio. Thank you. Bye-bye.